Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Thanksgiving coming up, Thanksgiving coming up, uh, a holiday in which we gather to give thanks for what we have, and um, gratitude, gratitude. This is a quality that I have been so deficient in my entire life, that, and I, I occasionally make spasmodic attempts to be grateful for the things I have and have had, and they have been many. But uh, the <laughs> my lifelong stronger habit and inclination of bitterness, negativity, and complaint just overwhelms it all the time. So it's something I guess I'd have to practice. I have to practice. So here's a holiday coming up where you uh, gather with other people, presumably your family or other people and or other people, and you're grateful for things. Um, 
last week. You know, but there's always this complaining all the time. Uh, complaining. I was talking to Gary Null once, and um, he was uh, he was saying um, that you were, that I was. Uh, he heard what I was complaining about, and I said, "Well, I'd like to stop complaining." You know, and he said, "No, Mike, that's what you do." Oh, that's sad, right? <laughs> and there's a difference between pointing out things that need adjusting or that are not righteous in the world and suggesting a way to repair it <clears throat> and just complaining about it. But um, I think complaining is a learned response. Like anything else that forms a major part of your personality is a learned response. Where, where and how you grew up. Uh, I grew up in a house with just my mother who was... I, I I would have said up until I reviewed my life recently that she was the world's champion complainer, but I may actually be even worse. Um, she complained about everything all the time, every minute. Um, and my father, who was not there, was exactly the opposite. When I spent time with my father or when I went to live with him for a few months once when I was older, <clears throat> I observed and um, he... Was it, is it this word, aphorisms? He would give me various sayings that, that would confirm this. He was a 30s depression, you know, World War II kind of tough guy. And um, men, he says, men don't complain. Women complain. Women can complain if they want. That's what women do. Um, and one time I was complaining about something. He says, you're like, he says, you're like a girl. You're like a woman. And it was like I was a teenager then. That was very helpful. Um. You know, and along with other things, like if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. That was one of my father's. Uh, does this sound familiar? These things sound familiar. <laughs> if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. And um, he would go through periods where uh, he didn't say anything at all. So I guess he didn't have something nice to say about anybody at the time. But um, yeah, this complaining, learned behavior. And I think uh, watching my mother. <clears throat> She didn't teach me, you know, I want you to practice every day to complain. No, what she did was she spent her life complaining about everything, no matter what anybody gave her, uh, no matter, and she got a lot from people, but it was never enough, and that was a sad problem. It's never enough. For people who complain all the time, you can be sure that there's never enough. There's never enough to fill that hole. Um, and they're always complaining, 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 but even if somebody suggests sometimes that um, here's what you do, or here's a good suggestion so you don't have to feel bad about the thing you're complaining about. Yeah, but then you complain about, oh, that's impossible to do, or I can't do that. This is, this is, um, <sighs> this is the way I've always been. I was complaining. What was I complaining about last week among the thousand other things I complained about? I was bemoaning the lack of phone calls in the, you know, that people don't call this show because of the nature of podcasts and the way various other things are. And I was asking for responses as usual, which I've done many times. Uh, and it strikes me that this is really, you know, this is too much. It's too much complaining. Uh, I should be happy to know that people are, uh, I should just be happy to know that people are, uh, are just listening to the show and not need a pat on the back every time I open my mouth. I should be, should be, the, I should be grateful for that. But am I? No, no, I have to practice it. I have to, I have to practice it. And, um, well, Thanksgiving is coming up. These rituals are for a purpose, right? We can thank whoever it is, God or nature or circumstance, that we have a lot of things to be grateful for. And like I said, I have had and still do have a lot of things to be grateful for. Um, 
And um, one thing I, I keep, you know, you just keep doing it till you get it right or not. So uh, I have to, uh, I have to figure out to know when I'm well off. Finally, when I'm well off, and um, try to practice acceptance. Along with Thanksgiving comes acceptance. You know, I mean, increasingly have uh, various disabilities, and uh, instead of falling back on being bitter and complaining about it, I have to practice acceptance. Anyhow, those are my, that's my resolution for Thanksgiving. So let's see what happens. Nothing's not an awful lot, but knock on wood. Now, who's happy? We're happy. Just how happy? Very happy. That's the way we're gonna stay, so knock on wood. Now, who's lucky? We're all lucky. Just how lucky? Very lucky. Well, smile up then, and once again, let's knock on wood. Um, <laughs> knock on wood, count your blessings, count your blessings. Um, <clears throat> this plague, this tidal wave, this astounding uh, worldwide, or at least countrywide in this country, tidal wave of, um, of revelations about, um, oh, by the way, I, I do want to say that I'm grateful for the responses I got last week. I got... Several, some pretty, uh, pretty stark responses from, from some women in particular and from other people about um, generally men, women, but particularly from women, uh, about things they had suffered through, um, violence from men. And I wanted to uh, extend my appreciation for the people who did respond. Um, it's, uh, they were hard things to hear, but uh, uh, nevertheless... Anyhow, uh, so this tidal wave continues, and uh, I, I think probably what I'll try to do, unless something remarkable, even more remarkable happens between now and the next show, is I'll leave it alone after this, but um, it's just gathering steam. It's just like, a, what is it? It's an avalanche, right? It just, just picks up more and more and more as it heads uh, downhill and brings everybody with it. Um, what I heard yesterday, I'm listening to NPR uh, which is basically a liberal organization, not as liberal as people who are conservatives think it is, but it's a liberal organization. And um, uh, they have announced in the midst of their reporting about all these latest um, harassment charges for various people. And the latest one, the latest uh, you know, front page news one is Al Franken, Senator Al Franken. The liberal Democrat, Senator Al Franken. I don't know how liberal he is, but the Democrat, Senator Al Franken. Um, so they're reporting on that and more about him in a little while, but uh, not too much more. And NPR is um, talking about um, what's going on in their organization. And I don't know the exact titles, but the CEO 
of NPR recently resigned. The chief, the editor in chief of of NPR, recently uh, is on leave of absence or something. And all kinds of revelations are coming out about men who have been in positions of power, or who are now, at least temporarily, um, or were. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> uh, having harassed women in the workplace. And this is at NPR, the liberal bastion, right? So um, it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. This is really, this is like an absolutely, it's like a revolution. It's like a revolution. It's a cultural, political, social, and sexual revolution. And uh, there'll be a lot of, um, there'll be a lot of bodies lying on the ground before this is over. Some of them may not be uh, very guilty. Some of them may be particularly guilty. Um, and some of them may be just plain innocent. But that doesn't matter. When there's a revolution, um, it's inevitable. When there's a revolution, a lot of people get caught up in it. And a lot of people get accused of things, tried, convicted, and executed, and uh, didn't probably really deserve it. But that's the way it goes. For it just seems to be the way the historical pendulum goes. Uh, for a revolution sometimes to be successful, it has to sweep away everything in front of it. Good, bad, indifferent, sweep away everything. Um, and um, so now NPR is uh, self-reporting all the stuff that's going on, that has been going on. And you've got uh, two of the top men in the organization. I don't know how long they've been there, probably a while either uh, retiring, resigning, or on a leave of absence. And now Al Franken. Al Franken, I, I knew Al Franken just a tiny bit. His son went to the same, um, my son went to a private school for a couple of years, private uh, you know, grade school for a couple of years when there was money to afford it back in the day. And um, uh, Al Franken's kid, he lived on the Upper West Side like I did in Manhattan, and Al Franken's kid was in this school. And something, so he was the most, uh, he was this biggest celebrity parent. And there were times when uh, there were uh, sports contests or things that happened in gyms or other kind of contests that he would be the host for these things. And I saw him sometimes, you know, outside the school dropping off uh, my son, picking him up. Um, I formed a very small impression of him, but it was a very intense impression of him. This guy has a nasty streak that... And this is <laughs> entirely based on my observing him uh, several times um, when, you know, this is like uh, 20, 23 years ago or something like that. But uh, he, what I saw, I don't know, but when I saw, he always had a sort of routinely kind of nasty streak. He was sarcastic. And he, um, and he, uh, when I, when I saw him, somebody put on out his wife and I thought, the way he talked to this woman. I thought she worked for him because that's the way he talked to her. But they said, no, that was his wife. So who's to say? I don't know. So now Al Franken, complete with the most buffoonish, ridiculous, uh, humiliating, stupid, offensive picture of him. Thank God for the social network, right? <laughs> now there's a picture of Al Franken viewed by millions of people of him uh, putting his hands on or right over or then maybe on, I mean, a little bit, on a woman um, who was sleeping on her breasts. A woman who was sleeping, putting his hands on her breasts and turning around and smiling in a mischievous, quote-unquote, way for the camera. Okay, so now he's paying for his uh, idiocy and, 
the woman who he uh, who he did this to, um, apparently he did something else to her too, um, forced himself on her in some way, and uh, she's telling the whole world about it. So now he's issued this long, 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 actually way too long apology, and um, he is referring himself to the ethics committee. This is not Roy Moore. There's a difference here. Roy Moore, uh, probably what Roy Moore did was a lot worse over a longer period of time. But, uh, of course, it doesn't make any difference to, to the people who vote for him in Alabama. They couldn't care. I mean, if he, was, if he had raped, just plain raped several women or girls, apparently he would still be uh, getting, um, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of votes or a couple of million votes down in Alabama. And that's the nature of things in Alabama. But uh, so Franken, what's the difference? Liberal Democrat, he has referred himself instantly to the ethics committee and uh, something like 25 or 25, something like how many uh, Democratic senators are? Maybe there aren't. uh, Maybe 30 Democratic senators have come forward and said that uh, denounced him and said that he has to. This is not going to stop until. Another dozen senators on both sides go down and maybe, uh, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 House of Representatives, Congress people um, go down, members of the House go down, Uh, men. And uh, it's revolutionary. And is this a bad thing? No, I think it's a good thing. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, it's probably a good idea that a lot of these people who have these entrenched positions or people who have positions in in politics that are making laws and running the country – you know, get themselves looked at and maybe lose their positions, have to go, you know, struggling to get them back again or start all over or somebody else gets a chance. On the other hand, it's bad uh, because some of these people have extremely uh, productive, humanistic and liberal voting records. They propose laws that benefit all of us. They uh, make speeches that benefit all of us, right, including women, Um but uh, this is the way it goes. This is part of the revolution. Uh, and apropos of last week, uh, the show I did about men, women, violence, and power, a listener pointed out that I neglected to mention Bill Clinton in my list of um, powerful men who use their positions of power to force themselves sexually on women. And Clinton was outrageous. Clinton was accused by uh, many women of everything from groping to actual rape and never paid any price for it. I don't remember whether, I think there were lawsuits, but nothing came of it. And, um, uh, but uh, if it happened now, I mean, if this stuff came out now, if we had the same climate now, the same, the same climate that we have now, um, and Clinton was caught up in it, he would suffer a hell of a lot more. And that's good. That's good that he would suffer a lot more because he got away with a lot of shit. And Clinton was really out of control. And um, now this guy, Louis C.K., uh, who is already becoming old news, right? He's uh, publicly shamed and he's issued his apologies. And his career is at the very least on hold, if not actually permanently destroyed. And, um, you know, the punishment will be maybe much greater than the crime, but um, there it is. That's what goes on when you have a cultural or a political or even a gender revolution. Uh, when I think about these guys, I think about Bill Clinton. Chelsea Clinton was 18 years old and lived in the White House with uh, him and Hillary um, uh, when, he was, uh, when he was having this little sexual affair with Monica Lewinsky. She was living in the, in the other wing of the White House while he was in the Oval Office um, having a sexual relationship with um, 
which he lied about forthrightly. <laughs> you remember that? I did not have sex with that woman. Right. And um, anyhow, so she was 18 years old. She was his teenage daughter, right? And um, when these things came out, when he was running for office, uh, when he was running for president initially and when he ran again, all these things were coming out. And she was a kid. And what did she think of him? What went on between the two of them? What went on between the two of them? Um, same thing with Louis C.K. He's got two daughters. He's got two daughters. All this stuff comes out about the way he was dealing with women and treating women. And um, he's, uh, did they know? Uh, maybe the older daughter knew. The older daughter, I don't know. I forgot her name. I looked it up, but I forgot. Um, she worked on one of his TV shows. and So she might have heard rumors she was older about her father. But uh, now the whole world knows. And so what goes on between them all now? I mean, what is the relationship? What is the relationship? I mean, she, um, you know, these kids have to deal with their father and his attitude towards women. And in his case, it's very, um, it's very strange. It's very strange and very complicated because he apparently, I don't, I don't know his act that well. Like I said last week, I only saw about 10 minutes on YouTube once and it was about something I you know, thought was kind of like, I don't know, vulgar and stupid. But that's because I'm old, maybe. I don't know. But I didn't get his humor too much. I didn't like it. But uh, apparently millions of people do. So um, he, uh, but he spent a career, apparently. Uh, and I think it's like Al Franken has uh, champion women's rights, right? And a guy like, um, and this guy, Louis C.K., has been, um, has been a lot of his act uh, over a long time now. Uh, what is he around 50 or something? A lot of his act over a long time now has been about sexual compulsions that he has. And he's uh, sort of uh, talked about masturbation and he's imitated you know, like masturbation on stage. And it's, um, it's confusing and it's strange. When you got a guy, and I know a little bit about this, when you have somebody who, whose personal life becomes their act, um, then also their act becomes their personal life. It's very difficult to distinguish. You get a certain, like, deception. It's a certain deception that, uh, that sets in. And um, uh, I have to say that, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain more what I mean. I have to say I feel, I do feel, because I've done the same thing in a very, very minor way compared to him, extremely minor way, uh, without the um, sexual harassment. But uh, I feel a kind of sympathy for him. Uh, I know a lot of women feel like, you know, well, screw him, you know, fuck him. I mean, what he did, he deserves the worst. And he's getting the worst. I'm sure his family life is a total disaster. Well, he's divorced from his wife for many years now. But um, what goes on between him and his daughters? I mean, children will love their parents uh, almost no matter what. Children need that love from their parents like they need food and drink and plants need sunshine. That's what, that's what it's all about, is that love you get from your parents. And you especially need it when you're young. But you need it all your life. You need it all your life. You need that trust and you need that regard and you need that appreciation that they give you. Um, and um, so now what happens between people? I mean, so Chelsea Clinton, for instance, or, um, or Louis C.K.'s uh, kids, his daughters, they'll, maybe, they'll probably always love him. You know, they'll always love him. He didn't do anything to them. I mean, God forbid that there are, there are parents, there are men, uh, and some women, there are men who have abused um, and molested their own um, children. And um, this is the ultimate violation of trust. 
And, uh, uh, but even these people might spend a good portion of their lives still trying to earn the, the love, the love of their parents. And sometimes, finally, the, the healthy thing to do is to give it up, and people do give it up, which is very sad. They're never going to get that. They're just never going to get it. But um, anyhow, uh, so, so, what's, so what's gone? And maybe, and maybe the love uh, in this case, in these cases, where somebody like Al Franken's got kids too. I don't know if he's got you know, daughters. But, you know, yeah, they'll always love, you know, these, they'll always love their fathers. But uh, they may never quite respect them again or really actually trust them in a lot of ways, which is sad. But anyway, I was saying, so a guy like Louis C.K., and there's more people like this since like the 1980s and 90s. There's more people, as Spalding Gray did this, and I did this on the radio, and I did this uh, in performance, and I've done this um, in a couple of books I wrote, is that your, your personal life becomes your act. So I tell stories about my personal life and explain about myself and talk about myself and describe myself. And there's this magical thinking that goes on. There's a guy like Louis C.K., magical thinking that goes on. If you have uh, a fault or a compulsion or you have uh, something that's very disturbing that you do or you feel in your life, but if you talk about it, uh, George Carlin did this somewhat too later on in his career. If you talk about it, but not, not like um, you know, Spaulding did or I did a tiny bit and um, – and this guy, Louis C.K., made, and he got rich and famous doing it. You talk about these things, and there's a magical thinking, which is that if you talk about them to a lot of people, and you're self-deprecating, and you, know, you put yourself on the spot, and you talk about it, it's a, kind of, it's a kind of mass confession. And then it's as if you actually cured yourself. There's a tremendous amount of self It's not only just deceiving. Maybe deceiving other people when you talk about it. But the person who you're really deceiving is yourself when you do this. If you imagine that just by talking about these things that you're curing yourself, which I always did and realized to my uh, despair later on in life that all this talking that I, bet, uh, I did about all the things that I uh, thought that I was you know, fixing by talking about them didn't fix anything. It was just talk. It was just talk. And the behavior remains. It's what you do. So Louis C.K., uh, I guess, was on stage for decades or in these t- TV shows and um, uh, portrayed himself perhaps honestly and uh, as the anguished, uh, loving father in uh, his TV show and talked about all this stuff in his act. And it was his way, I guess, and this is where I have some sympathy from. It was his way of preserving his sanity uh, but this, the deception is self-deception. And he apparently, and I'm sure, thought that he was curing himself by doing this. Or maybe I shouldn't judge him. I don't know the man. Maybe he was just main, maintaining himself. Maybe he knew that he had to keep talking about these things so that it wasn't even worse, that his behavior wasn't even worse, so that it didn't sink into some kind of, um, kind of behavior or state of being that was, um, that was irretrievable, you know, that he couldn't fix. I mean, he got applauded uh, by people, um, got paid, paid a lot of money, and um, maybe, uh, fact, maybe, in fact, the richer and the more famous you get, and the more and more people will applaud you and pay attention to you and congratulate you for your searing honesty or whatever else it is, and sometimes it is, um, maybe the more and more people that do that, 
then less and less you are in actual touch with the fact that you still have to get up every single day and do the right thing. Just making uh, an act or doing an autobiographical story is not really enough. And this is a lesson that I've never quite learned myself, but um, something that I have to be aware of. Um, I guess there's something else, too, about this, um, this, whole, um, this whole thing that's going on now. Is that, and I said, this will be, I try to make this the last show I do about this. There's plenty of other things going on in the world that need talking about, uh, and other stories I might tell about things that are going on in my life or have gone on. Um, there is a certain, and maybe is this just because I'm a man? There is a certain hysteria going on here. There is a hysteria. In every revolution, there is a kind of mania, a hysteria, a group, like a mob mentality. And, um, and uh, the phrase a lot of people use is witch hunting. But I think that the, all of this is uh, inevitable. There's, if there is, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. When something has been so bad, so awful for so long, and so universal, and so repressed and accepted, uh, maybe because it had to be by women particularly, when it finally surfaces, it's going to explode and destroy everything in its path, absolutely everything. And that's the way it's looking right now. Um, these things are, are absolutely inevitable, absolutely inevitable. So, um, I think there's probably a lot of men in prominent positions, uh, uh, who are living in dread right now. There are probably, as I speak, there are probably, uh, a dozen senator, dozen male senators, uh, 62 male, uh, members of the house of representatives, um, uh, 10 governors, uh, who knows how many people in state assemblies, um, prosecuting attorneys. I mean, there are men all over the place, F uh, famous uh, ball players. although we know more about their, uh, some of these men's nasty personal lives than we know about anything. Um, there are people everywhere, uh, well-known financiers, bankers, CEOs, members of Trump's cabinet, Trump himself, well, we all know about him already, but there are revelations just waiting in line like planes, you know, circling over an airport, waiting to land. These things are going to keep coming up and up and up and up, pardon the expression. So there it is, you know, and more and more this is going to happen all the time. Uh, and, and I think and I hope that actually it changes everything. It changes everything. Um, and I guess the last thing I wanted to say about this thing in terms of just these, uh, the, these men and the, the, that's going on here, a lot of it seems to be with politics and entertainment, but that makes sense. It's so public you know, the public life, because then you have hypocrisy. But uh, Robert Bly, do you remember Robert Bly writing his book, Iron John? Now, was that in the 80s or the 90s? I don't remember. I think it was in the late 80s, Iron John. And without summing up the entire book or talking about it, he was talking about the loss in modern, I guess he was talking about modern American society, of, uh, of old, old male rituals, wherein men and women were distinguished from each other in, in positive ways, you know, uh, femininity was, uh, had its own rituals, masculinity had its own rituals. You went from a boy to being a man, and men were sort of men, and women were women, whatever that meant to him. Uh, I once interviewed Robert Bly on my radio show, and uh, he was a real son of a bitch. <laughs> and not, you know, I'm not saying because, uh, because of his attitude about men and women, uh, or maybe who knows that's part of it, but... Um, 
he just he was one of those uh, every once in a while I had a guest I had many many guests on in my time on the radio but he came on this is a live audience that I was doing a radio show uh, in front of a live audience and he came on he had a book that had just come out called The Sibling Society this was back in when I don't know the 1990s the late 1990s and he or mid 1990s and he was talking and he got a very large crowd coming up there to the bookstore where I uh, was in charge of the old book department and did my radio show. And um, I was talking to him, and he kept, uh, and before we even got on the air, uh, he, um, he just took over. I mean, he was extraordinary. It was not like he was a guest. He was like the host and the guest, the producer and the director. And um, he, was, he was so difficult, and he was so uh, nasty, and even when we went on the air, I said a couple. I asked him a couple of questions about the book, and I was always, I thought, a pretty good interviewer. And a couple of times he said, you don't know what you're talking about, or you should be ashamed of yourself. Astounding, right? Um, and about halfway through the show, I remember actually saying, this was on the air, you know what? I don't really need you to be here. You know, I know you don't want to be pushing your book. You know, you're older now, and you don't want to be flying all over the country doing this. You shouldn't have to. And I understand that. Maybe I agree with it. But there's no need to be like this. And I don't really need you here. You know, I could, I, could do, I do a radio show or I do a monologue uh, anyhow. And, uh, you know, so if you wanted to take off right now, it's okay with me. And after that, maybe we got along a little bit better. But that was that, that, was that man thing. You know, we had to bump up against each other. Antlers in the forest, right? But he wrote this book, Iron John, which was uh, considered a sort of revolutionary book of its time. And a lot of women complained about this book. And a lot of men latched onto it um, and to make it very simple without going into the whole book, one of the things he said in there was that in modern American society, uh, there were too many what he called soft men, soft men. And this was certainly like maybe uh, in the middle class, in the middle class. Maybe he was particularly describing white middle class. But there were soft men and women didn't know what to do about them and were angry about these men. And what was a soft man? A soft man was somebody who was trying too hard to understand and to access and maybe put into um, practice his feminine side. This whole thing about men, men's feminine sides, he had nothing but contempt for. He, uh, he acknowledged that it existed, but uh, that men should, should spend so much time and so much effort and uh, change their relationships uh, with the world and particularly with, uh, with the women they were with so that they were more feminine, more soft, instead of being hard and masculine. He thought that this was a terrible mistake, and he noted, according to him, that a lot of women were very angry about this. It irritated them and upset them, because that wasn't man's natural position, to use a certain word. That wasn't man's natural position. And he went on to explain about, uh, I don't know if he explained this in terms of sex, but other people did too. And some of the arguments were... Um, well, look, look at the way sex works on its most basic level. I mean, um, anatomically, physically. Um, a sperm is injected, right, into a certain pathway inside the woman and charges ahead in the most aggressive way possible to smash into the waiting egg. And a lot of people took from that, you know, an entire way that men are and that women are that men are and women are, you know. 
Uh, and that's the way, I mean, in my father's generation, there was no question about any of these things. A man did these things. I remember that line from The Godfather. You know, The Godfather? One of the great lines from The Godfather was, um, um, women can afford to be careless, but a man can't afford to be careless. Women's job is to sit and wait. This is the, the, the old line. Women's job was to sit and wait. And uh, when a man approached her, you know, then you could have some sort of relationship. It was not natural for a woman to be aggressive. Uh, women who did that were considered uh, manlike or too manly, you know. It was not considered feminine for women to do that. All these things over the last 20, 30 years have undergone tremendous changes, and they're still undergoing changes, and this is part of what's going on here, I think. But um, this whole idea of soft men, I had a couple of people write to me uh, after the last show I did about this, and um, said that they uh, were confused about it themselves. You know, said that they, in their lives they had the experience. But this is men who are in their fifties and sixties. This is still part of a uh, you know leftovers from another generation. Uh, men who, um, you know, who uh, who said that they were confused about this because if they wanted to ask a woman on a date, if they wanted to approach a woman, and they didn't, or they were too shy, it seemed to irritate some women. Or they, women just seem to, um, to, be, uh, to go with the men who are more aggressive. But this is still, I think, maybe left over from another uh, generation. I have no idea. I have no idea what it's like uh, for people in their 20s and 30s now. I don't know. Do women routinely ask men out on dates or ask men to, uh, to do things, to go places, uh, you know, to have sex? Do women routinely do that as much as men now? Is it totally equal? Or is there still some leftovers, leftovers, leftovers? Or is there anything natural about this based on biology and, and you know, anatomical things? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Well, anyhow, um, when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to sexual men use, abusing sexual power, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I've had people accuse me before of... Uh, of picking on the Catholic Church. I have some Catholic listeners uh, who are religious and observant, and they accuse me of picking on the Catholic Church. I suppose I have done that. I suppose I have done that. I admit that, right? I admit that I've done that before. And, um, but you have to say, uh, when it comes to men abusing power sexually and uh, destroying other people's lives, and in this case, it's mostly men destroying other boys and other men's lives, you got to say when it comes to something, you know, like, this kind of abuse, nothing compares with the church. Absolutely nothing. For decades, for centuries, you've had men abusing almost exclusively boys. And until they were forced to, the church was tolerating it and even facilitating it. They were just being you know, bumped up or moved along or transferred someplace else. Uh, there was this article in the, uh, in the Times the other day. Um, here it's called. It says, they quietly left the church, but the sexual abuse continued. And this is um, <clears throat> from about a week ago in the Times. The Diocese of Brooklyn on Thursday released the names of eight former priests who had been quietly, quietly removed from the church for sexual abuse of children. Several of these men went on to commit sex crimes after they left the diocese. Um, after leaving active ministry in 2002 as a priest in Brooklyn, Stephen Plaka, P-L-A-C-A, got his pilot's license and founded a flight school uh, in Ronkonkoma, Long Island, the Heritage Flight Academy. 
Seven years later, he was convicted in Suffolk County of the sexual abuse of two boys ages 8 and 10. In 1987, the Reverend Thomas O'Morrow went on an indefinite leave of absence from the Diocese of Brooklyn and began working as a psychologist in Forest Hills in Queens. He was still officially a priest when he was indicted in 1966. That's 10 years after um, he went on a leave of absence from the diocese on charges that he sodomized a 15-year-old boy he was hired to counsel. This is somebody that the parents brought, uh, he, was, uh, he was brought in to help a 15-year-old boy with psychological problems. He took nude photographs of him and gave him crack to smoke. The diocese said at the time that it had never gotten any complaints of abuse. Right. Eventually, it defrocked him. The two men are among the eight priests who the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn revealed on Thursday had been uh, laicized or defrocked by the Vatican for the sexual abuse of children since 2002. Of those eight, four went on to be arrested and convicted on child abuse charges after they left active ministry in Brooklyn. The other four do not appear to have been arrested, though whether they reoffended is unknown. The public disclosure of eight of the likely dozens of priests who have sexually abused children in, Brooklyn di- in a Brooklyn diocese over um, the uh, decades was met with a mixture of praise and frustration from victims and their advocates on Friday. While they were gratified that the disclosure would probably protect additional children, um, they noted that this was nowhere near a full accounting of clergy sex abuse. Um, basically, what you have here is a situation where the church... And this has uh, happened in probably hundreds, if maybe like a thousand cases, not just here, but in other places like Ireland and maybe in uh, Italy. But um, the church uh, received complaints from people or they knew. They knew. People knew about this for decades. And these priests were allowed to get away with this. And we're talking about not just molestation. I mean, there's some more graphic stuff in here. Uh, actual rape and um some boys, some of these boys grew up and uh, some of them just couldn't handle life anymore because of what happened to them and committed suicide. These men were coaches. They were counselors. They were priests who you went to because you had all kinds of spiritual or emotional troubles and you were a teenager. And your parents, not knowing any better, or maybe they should have known better, sent you to these uh, to these priests. And if you went and complained, I knew a couple of people uh, pretty well uh, boys who grew up in the church, uh, who went to, you know, Catholic schools, if you went and you, if you complained to your parents about them, they'd, they'd smack you too, maybe, or say, you know, you listen to what Father or whatever it is is telling you. He knows better. He's a priest. You shouldn't be complaining about him, you know? I don't believe it. Or even if he is doing it, it's for your own good. You know, that's if, that's if they were being knocked around. I suppose if there was some complaint of sexual behavior, <clears throat> maybe somebody would have done something about it. But when you're a kid, it's shameful, it's shameful. So you don't tell anybody about it. Who are you going to confess to if you're – who are you going to tell this to if you're like a 14 or 13 or 15-year-old uh, boy? You're supposed to go to the priest and he's supposed to listen to you and offer you counsel. That's who you go to to trust. I mean not being in these cultures um, prone generally, uh, especially back in the 50s and 60s, to go to psychologists. You went to the priest if you were Catholic. So these guys – uh, it's absolutely astounding. These guys in whom tremendous trust was placed, especially by children, um, were abusing kids and molesting kids and raping kids uh, for decades. And finally, uh, the church that knew about them, one thing they did was they transferred them all over the place. Instead of actually throwing them out of the church, 
immediately uh, taking away you know, their credentials and saying you're not a priest anymore. They just transferred them to another diocese where they continued to do the same thing, where they continued to do the same thing. And what this article is about is after they were defrocked or what's called laicized, um, the, they, their behavior was not reported to anybody. They were never arrested. The church never reported their behavior to anybody, to the authorities, and never made it known publicly. So they went on, a lot of them, to have these careers where they dealt with kids all the time, with boys all the time. And finally, a lot of them got arrested for even more rapes. What an extraordinary thing. This is all part of this world we're in here. This is all part of this world we're in here. An absolutely extraordinary thing. Um, well, it's sad. But now, see, the idea of all this opening up and everybody becoming aware of it, um, it's painful, and it's going to cause a lot of trouble for a lot of people. But in the end, it's better. All of this stuff is like a giant abscess that has been lanced. And like I say, I think a lot of people, uh, not these particular priests, but a lot of people who were innocent or sort of vaguely guilty or didn't do anything really that terrible are going to suffer right along with the people who did. But that's the way things go. Trouble, a house full of sin. Things are bad as they ever been. If trouble were money, I'd more money than any man should. I'm open for business in your neighborhood. The blues is my business, and business is good. If I had a dollar for every broken heart. Drinking fine wine and eating caviar. If trouble were money, I'd more money than any man should. Yeah. I'm open for business in your neighborhood. The blues is my business, and business is good. Yeah. Business and business is good. The blues is my business, and business is good. my business. Well, enough of this grim shit, and enough of me picking on the church. Can I stop that for a while? I guess I could stop for a while. But all these things are related. All these things are related. This is an entire, just, just leave it in our country right now, but it goes on all over the world in every way, in some ways more extreme, in some ways it's more advanced, but uh, this is uh, quite an extraordinary revolution. There'll be counter-revolutions. 
there'll be places where um, where women, if they speak out or they speak up, will get in a lot of trouble. But the, the basic lesson is here for men, don't do it, right? Uh, and for women, don't let men get away with it. Easy to say, easy to say. It's always been harder on the victims to do anything about it. But now there's more openness, and uh, now people are listening. Um, whether anybody's going to go ahead and accuse somebody of something that never happened in the first place, which is what a lot of men dread, and I'm sure it's happened before. Who knows? Maybe that's what law courts are for. But there'll be a lot of people suffering from it, a lot of people suffering. But uh, things have to change. Um, as far as the church goes, there is some good news for the church. And basically, the good news is the Pope. This guy, uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's sort of in with all the other stuff that goes on um, you know, men, uh, priests can't, uh, men have to be, uh, priests have to be men and they can't marry. Uh, there's no sex uh, and other things. So women basically are, have been and still are second class citizens in the church, just as they are in other fundamentalist religions, uh, Jewish, uh, Muslim, perhaps Hindu, probably. But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still that way. But uh, there was an article that came out back in September and it said Pope Francis sought psychoanalysis at the age of 42, according to a book. At 42, Pope Francis had weekly sessions. I guess he was a Monsignor then. Maybe he was a bishop. I don't know. At 42, Pope Francis had weekly sessions with a psychoanalyst for about six months to, quote, unquote, clarify some things, according to an excerpt from a new book by, uh, by a French sociologist. The revelation came in one of a series of 12 interviews sociologist uh, Dominique Walton conducted with the Pope at the Vatican for the book. Francis did not explain in detail why he had decided to pursue therapy, but he said he felt that he needed it and that it had helped him a lot, according to the book. Um, <clears throat> the Vatican analyst noted that Francis, who is now 80, was a Jesuit official in Argentina at the time when the country was ruled by a military dictatorship, a murderous, murderous military dictatorship that was uh, killing people right and left and disappearing people all over the place. And listen to this. Francis, Pope Francis, born uh, George Mario Bergoglio, established a rapport with the therapist who was a woman, and she called him when she was close to dying later on in life, not to receive the sacraments since she was Jewish, but for spiritual dialogue, Francis said. She was a good person. So... Pope Francis, or, or the current pope, when he was 42 years old, went to a psychoanalyst. And um, uh, I don't know whether this is sanctioned for, by the church or paid for by the church. Uh, uh, in 1967, according to this article, let's see. Uh, in 1967, Pope Paul acknowledged the important role of doctors and competent psychologists in determining the overall health of future priests. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> it has taken a long time since that happened, too. But uh, so about the time, you know, I mean, he was, the Vatican said it was okay. So he went there and maybe the church paid for it. And it's an extraordinary situation, like so many things in life. Here's uh, the church, which is, uh, you know, notorious uh, for its uh, putting women in their place, more or less, and uh, maybe not trusting women. Uh, and uh, he... Uh, being the kind of individual he is, uh, suffered. Who knows what kind of spiritual trouble he had? Maybe he was uh, wondering why 
why it was he was kind of he was a priest and what good was it doing anybody just to be a priest in a place where uh, power was being wielded in the most vicious way by other men. Maybe he felt he should be more political. He had friends down in Argentina, uh, women friends who were leading uh, very brave women who were leading. Uh, the protests and the resistance against these um, these dictators, the military dictators uh, in Argentina. And maybe he just was troubled that he couldn't do enough, that it wasn't enough just to hear people's confessions or counsel people who were whose families were destroyed by these by these men. Maybe he thought it wasn't enough. Or who knows what it was? You don't know. Maybe he was questioning his own belief, his own belief. I don't know. But it's an extraordinary thing. And that he went to see a woman and that she was Jewish. If this can happen, if he could do that, why, to, uh, to echo a, a phrase that has long been made fun of, why can't we all get along? I mean, the head of the Catholic Church goes to see a Jewish woman for help, okay? Forget about all this stuff. Let women be priests. Let everybody have sex, you know? Leave them alone. Give people divorces. Enough already. Uh, anyhow. Um, Pope Francis, an interesting character. Um, uh, I was talking, uh, you know, uh, earlier about uh, my uh, habit of complaining and that it's becoming Thanksgiving. So uh, next, was it? Next Thursday is Thanksgiving. Uh, will I ever stop complaining? I don't know. I, I, I try every day, all day long, like an alcoholic tries every day, all day long. Just do the right thing. Stay away from drinking. I try to stay away from thinking negatively and from complaining. But uh, I don't always necessarily do a good job. But I thought I'd just take this chance right now, since Thanksgiving is coming up, to uh, to say what I'm grateful for, what I am grateful for. And so I want to say that every chance I ever had to help anybody in any way, any chance I ever had to entertain anybody or inspire somebody or to make somebody laugh, to help somebody feel less alone in the world, usually by my radio show, or maybe sometimes when I was listening to a friend who was in pain and needed somebody just to listen to, or my own kids. Um, I want to say I'm, I'm grateful for the friends I've had, especially one special friend, uh, one particular friend who has uh, shown by his example the value of committing yourself wholeheartedly to whatever you do and whatever relationship you, you're in, and especially his dedication to the, to the saving value of art. Um, and also, um, every woman I ever cared about, of course, who loved me, especially my long-suffering wife, uh, who has put up with all this stuff, who has brought love and truth and beauty into my life. So I'm grateful for her, eternally grateful, and for my two children, uh, who mean more to me than I could possibly understand even or say out loud. I just wanted to get this all on the record. And to say also that I'm grateful that I have something to eat <clears throat> and a place to live. It's a hard world. And it's getting harder. And I just wanted to get this all on the record. Um, let's go to that uh, song, That's a Plenty, on there. Let's go to that song. So uh, happy Thanksgiving. And uh, may you find some gratitude in your heart. And may I do that, too.
All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, get in touch with me if you want. way to do that is um, go to the Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and you get in touch with me that way. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, and uh, I'm grateful for all of you who have been listening and who have been listening for years. Okay. Um, I'll see you next week. Um, thanks for listening. Well, it's all right Riding around in the breeze Well, it's all right If you live the life you please Well, it's all right Doing the best you can Well, it's all right As long as you lend a hand You can sit around and wait For the phone to ring Waiting for someone to tell you everything Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring Maybe a diamond